Hello, I'm Dr. Yvonne Salgo, and welcome to Ortho Science Bites. Today I'm joined by Dr. Christopher DeFilippi. Dr. DeFilippi is, is a distinguished cardiologist and currently practices at the Innova Heart and Vascular Institute in Fairfax, Virginia, and serves as the Vice Chair of Academic Affairs. In his oversight of clinical research, he has built Innova into a national leading uh, research site, uh, and he serves on the editorial boards of Circulation, Jack, and Jack Heart Failure. He's an associate editor for the Journal of Applied Laboratory Medicine, and his research is focused on evaluating in vitro diagnostics and proteomics discovery for diagnosis, prognosis, and therapy guidance across a spectrum of health conditions, from the detection of preclinical cardiovascular disease to the diagnosis and treatment in the critically ill. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. DeFilippi. Yvonne, thank you for having me. I'd like to thank uh, Ortho uh, for inviting me. So our topic today is uh, heart failure, and it's a topic of uh, significant interest for me in my career, having worked in heart failure, transplantation, and imaging. And the focus for today uh, in heart failure that we'll be talking about will be NT-terminal pro-B-type natriuretic peptide, or NT-pro-BNP for short, to help diagnose it. Heart failure is a common disease and the most frequent cause of hospitalization in patients uh, age 65 and over. So in talking about patients, why don't we start with the etiology of heart failure, both ischemic uh, as well as other causes. Uh, maybe you could uh, help introduce the audience to heart failure. Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, first let me state the obvious. Heart failure is common. How common is it? Well, in the United States right now, the prevalence of heart failure is approximately 6 million uh, individuals. And this is only going to increase as the population ages, and you've heard that before, but it's thought by 2030 that the prevalence of heart failure will rise to as many as 8 million. So uh, a disease that we see very commonly and one that we can anticipate uh, to see more commonly. Again, Javon, as you mentioned, it is a disease of generally older adults, uh, 60 or 65 and older. So what are then the etiologies? So we can talk about or think about patient attributable risk. And when we think about that generally, uh, a lot of the risk associated with heart failure overlaps with the same risks that are associated with ischemic heart disease. And about 50% of the incident cases of heart failure, new cases of heart failure, can be contributed to sort of the same general risk factors. Uh, and those include hypertension is one of the most important, uh, smoking, diabetes, uh, obesity, uh, to, name, to name the most common. Of course, the development of ischemic heart disease, to which those risk factors can also be contributed to, do lead to the acceleration ultimately to an end-stage heart disease or heart failure. Yes, and actually uh, thinking back, uh, probably multiple etiologies in terms of pump failure, for example, viral cardiomyopathy, I thought it might also be interesting to talk a little bit about uh, uh, hypertension and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and we'll talk a little bit l later about imaging, but maybe you could help uh, the audience uh, understand that a little better, because uh, I also frequently have found also in my practice uh, that... Uh, uh, it's underappreciated in the non-cardiac community. Yeah, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is really a challenge, sometimes both a challenge to diagnose because it's mentioned often associated with a lot of uh, other comorbidities and frequently is somewhat of a systemic disease versus heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. It's generally believed that the prevalence is probably about equal in terms of having heart failure with reduced ejection fraction 
i.e. that's a left ventricular ejection fraction of 40% or less, or a heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which usually is defined as uh, left ventricular ejection fraction of 50% or greater. And then, you know, there's this, this mid-range uh, between 40 and 50, which in large part seems to behave more like heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Uh, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is, uh, again, a uh, disease or, or finding that uh, gains in um, prevalence in, in older adults. Uh, in fact, you know, older adults over age 70 with heart failure, it's about uh, odds ratio of 1.9 that it's heart failure with preserved ejection fraction compared to younger adults. And a lot of that has to do with accumulation of other comorbidities, such as chronic kidney disease, as you mentioned, uh, hypertension, uh, and then other disorders as well. So as we start to segment the population a little bit, maybe you could build on not only age, but uh, gender as well, and how these uh, uh, impact prevalence, and maybe uh, for some of the some of the diseases, long-standing pathophysiologic insult and its contribution to, to heart failure etiology. Certainly. Like, like much of cardiovascular disease, the prevalence of heart failure is higher in men compared to women. And in fact, you know, if you look at particularly in, well, shall we say, younger, older adults between, you know, the decades of the 60s and, and 70s, there is almost a two to one proportion of men versus women. By the time you reach age 80 uh, and older, it tends to be more equal to actually having a slightly uh, greater prevalence in women. And maybe that the traditional risk factors, which are more common in men, play a greater role as to, in terms of the patient attributable risk in, in younger, older adults, uh, as compared to sort of a com- cumulative uh, risk burden in uh, older, older adults. Super. So, so with that background on the causes of heart failure, uh, as patients present, uh, how is heart failure diagnosed? You know, that's, um, it's interesting. It, it seems like there should be a very definitive diagnosis for heart failure, you know, whether it be an assessment of left ventricular function or something classic on physical exam. So, so the initial criteria were put forth by the Framingham Heart Study, and they were published in the early 1970s in a seminal paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. And a number of the criteria are sort of measures that we wouldn't use in modern practice, but many are, are still relevant nearly 50 years later and include some of the classical physical exam findings, such as you know, crepitus or rowels on the lung exam, presence of jugular venous extension and lower extremity edema. So we have the physical findings, of course, going along with uh, symptoms that are generally dis, initially dyspnea on exertion, but then other maybe more specific findings, as well as sensitive for heart failure, such as the inability to lie flat, that would be orthopnea, or waking up at night, feeling short of breath, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. And then classically, we would combine that with imaging, such as a chest x-ray. Now, things have moved forward since then. I know we're going to talk about biomarkers, particularly uh, the nitric peptide in terminal pro-BNP and its counterpart uh, B-type nitritic peptide. But, you know, increasingly we're finding with the improvements in technology, a more ubiquitous availability of ultrasound. And uh, I run our fellowship program at the Innova Heart and Vascular Institute, and we are moving away from just training our fellows to do cardiac ultrasound 
but actually going to be training them in doing point of care ultrasound or what's called POCUS uh, to look at the lungs and look for signs uh, that could be consistent with uh, lung edema. So, so it is evolving in both biomarkers, uh, adding sensitivity and, and some specificity, as well as some additional imaging like uh, focused ultrasound exams. Yeah, so especially since I'm an ultrasound uh, physician, I should uh, I feel obli obligated to point out uh, uh, ultrasound imaging can be very useful in helping differentiate and helping understand cardiac mechanics, both in terms of reduced ejection fraction, where you can look at either dilation of heart and reduced EF, but by using uh, Doppler ultrasound as well, you can look at uh, flow patterns of ventricular filling, and you, can, and you can look in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, you can actually see the, the uh, challenges to filling in patients with HEFPEF. But I think today's focus will be on biomarkers, so I'll, I'll shift us over there. So, so tell us a little bit about how you use biomarkers and importantly, what some of the advantages are of NT-ProBNP today in your practice. Yeah, so, so the use of nitritic peptides General been now available clinically for just a little over 20 years in the United States. So this has given an opportunity to learn a, a lot about how to incorporate them into clinical practices, what their advantages are, and sometimes what their pitfalls are, and also how do we incorporate, incorporate them in the setting of uh, newer medications that may uh, dramatically impact on their level. So the nice thing about uh, nitritic peptide is you can measure it with a high degree of reproducibility. Uh, it's relatively inexpensive to measure. It doesn't require a uh, special skill. Matter of fact, there's point of care instruments that can be used. Um, and then uh, there are central laboratory instruments as well. N-terminal pro-BNP, one of the dominant measurements used through, throughout the world. It, it represents the inactive portion of the pro-BNP molecule, which is released from cardiomyocytes under myocardial stretch or increased pressure or, or other uh, st stimuli, the pro-BNP is cleaved to be the active hormone uh, B-type nitritic peptide, which has both a vasodilatory and, and diuretic effect. And then the inactive component, the amino terminal or N-terminal pro-BNP, which can be uh, measured as well. The N-terminal pro-BNP uh, has some potential advantages as a diagnostic tool, perhaps, over uh, B-type nitric peptide, and we can get into those a little bit later. I can, I can talk about those now. Yeah, no, absolutely. Why don't we take advantage of this? Maybe you can elaborate further. That'd be great. Sure. So, so N-terminal pro-BNP can be used as a diagnostic marker in someone who presents with signs and symptoms that may be consistent with heart failure. And it is, it is elevated in response to myocardial stretch, will lead to a large increase. So there can be many stimuli that may lead to chronic uh, low-level elevations, uh, even including uh, chronic ischemic heart disease or chronic kidney disease, for example. But if there's someone who's presenting with worsening shortness of breath, for example, usually there'll be a large perturbation that can be measured with uh, N-terminal pro-BNP. And initially, it was found that using a single cutoff might, might be optimal. 
and that combined with clinical judgment, it was shown to definitively increase the accuracy of the diagnosis of heart failure. There's been refinements uh, over the past decade, uh, including a study in the United States published a few years ago uh, by my colleague Jim Januzzi called Icon Reloaded, that ultimately confirmed that age-related cutoffs were were probably optimal uh, and could account for some of these comorbidities that you see uh, in older adults, so, uh, such that younger individuals, uh, less than age 50, which is you know young for uh, presentation with heart failure, an optimal cutoff to rule in heart failure at, at 450 and more middle-aged to younger, older adults between the ages of 50 and 75, a cutoff of 900 picograms per mil to, to rule in heart failure. And then for older adults, older than 75, who again often have these other comorbidities like chronic kidney disease uh, and just sort of a cumulative burden of cardiovascular disease, a cutoff of 1,800 picograms per mil for rule in. And then all individuals, irrespective of age, could be effectively ruled out with a high degree of accuracy at a level less than 300 picograms per mil. And importantly, you know, people say, you know, I've got great clinical judgment. I've been practicing for a long time. Maybe I'm a specialist in ED medicine or or cardiology, but we, we've all learned to be humble and recognize that, you know, signs and symptoms associated with heart failure are not always heart failure. And it can be difficult to differentiate people who have comorbid diseases, let's say like emphysema. So that uh, nitritic peptide added on top of good clinical judgment and even, you know, basic uh, imaging such as a chest x-ray uh, does add to the overall accuracy for the diagnosis of heart failure. Uh, here's a question, Dr. DeFilippi. What are some of the differences between BNP and NT pro BNP? There are probably two main differences that are that are clinically relevant. So, they're, they're, of course, there are different levels for cutoffs um, because of the longer half life associated with N-terminal pro BNP. It's that the the um, in vivo half life is uh, two hours versus about twenty minutes for for BNP. The N-terminal pro-BNP levels are going to be higher. You know, just kind of a rule of thumb that you teach residents and our and our fellows and seen in the literature is for someone with an acute exacerbation, not not someone at at you know who's doing fine or doesn't have cardiovascular disease, an acute exacerbation, you'll see N-terminal pro-BNP levels about eight to twelve times higher, or just think of them about ten times higher than you will for for BNP. But it's not that translatable. Um, Yvonne. So there are a couple issues. There's, you know, what we'll call the in vitro, you know, our out-of-body component, which is because of the stability of N-terminal pro-BNP, this can make a difference based on sample handling. Not so relevant necessarily if you're using a point-of-care device or you have some fairly rapid turnaround for your measurements in the hospital. But if you, for example, were going to measure Uh, a nitritic peptide in the ambulatory setting, in the office, you're following someone maybe with chronic heart failure, you want to do that. That's where, you know, degradation, unless you have a very special tube type, degradation can become important. And unless that sample is processed and chilled quite quickly, um, you know, over a period of hours, you can actually have a a degradation, your BNP level giving you uh, what we call false negative value. Uh, the other has been with the advent of relatively new heart failure therapies, in, in particular, uh, one called um, Secubitrol Valsartan, or its brand name is uh, Entresto. So Valsartan is an angiotensin re- receptor blocker, and it's combined to 
chemically to a nephrolysis inhibitor called secubitrol. So secubitrol was one of the first drugs that actually was not an antagonist, but really an agonist type of drug that was shown evidence in heart failure patients with reduced ejection fraction to uh, reduce mortality and reduce hospitalizations. And it does this. Uh, nephrolysin is a rather uh, promiscuous enzyme that degrades multiple proteins. And importantly, two very important ones are B-type nitritic peptide and, and ANP, uh, A-type nitritic peptide. So by preventing the degradation, secubitrol so inhibits nephrolysin uh, of BNP, you'll actually get a rise in BNP for people who are on that chronic therapy. In contrast, because you're improving hemodynamics and improving the neurohormonal status, N-terminal pro-BNP will decline. So how much rise might you expect um, with BNP? Well, this is the real challenge. There was a, a paper in 2019 that looked at a whole number of different assays for BNP. So, you know, BNP assays don't have the same synchronization or harmonization as N-terminal pro-BNP, and uh, they're different antibodies to different epitopes. So depending on where these epitopes are located, there may be differences in the way the fragments that remain for BNP that are, that are present or have been degraded or inhibited from being degraded. So depending on what manufacturer's BNP assay you, you use, you can see anything from as little as a 10 to 20% increase in BNP to as much as a 45 to 50% increase in BNP from a baseline uh, in a heart failure patient once they've been started on the secubitrol valsartan measure. So that can potentially present some challenges when, you know, if you've got a baseline level, patients on this therapy, they come in with shortness of breath, you're not quite sure of the etiology, the, the BNP can rise. You know, that, that said, usually a, a true acute heart failure exacerbation will be associated with a very marked elevation of a nitritic peptide and terminal pro-BNP or BNP. It really may over, sort of overwhelm that difference, but it's just something to be on the lookout for. Yeah, so, so building on that, I think what, what we're learning, especially uh, as imaging and diagnostics and in vitro diagnostics progress, is that symptoms uh, perhaps can present later uh, than other, if you, if you will, subclinical manifestations that you can see by in vitro diagnostic testing and other testing. Uh, I think an important aspect is actually in looking a, a across from a laboratory perspective, uh, standardization. So I'd be interested, uh, are these, are age stratified cutoffs standardized across manufacturers? They are. And that's, you know, those age, age-related age cutoffs that I spoke about were derived from one manufacturer, but uh, there has been good harmonization, to my understanding, for N-terminal pro-BNB across different manufacturers so that as a clinician, you really don't have any idea unless you're someone like me who finds a particular interest in, in studying and, and the utilization on a day-to-day basis of nitritic peptides or other other biomarkers, you don't often know who the manufacturer is in the central lab. But you can be confident that uh, N-terminal pro-BNP coming from some referral hospital is going to essentially be replicated or very closely by the N-terminal pro-BNP assay at your institution. So as we uh, build on that, and as, as we've already spoken about today, it's important to substratify or segment populations 
what is your view on the differences in cutoffs between uh, men and women in age stratified cutoffs? I mentioned the age stratified cutoffs, and I think those are critically important. And there are differences in sensitivity and specificity, you know, based on the the age stratifications of the you know 450 for rule in for less than age 50 and 900 for between ages of 51 and 75 and 1800 for a rule in for uh, age greater than 75 and then 300 picograms per ml for a a rule out. There can be some differences with gender, but really they're probably not relevant enough that one would apply separate gender specific cutoffs, and that. That hasn't kind of been the standard in the cardiology field. The, there's the recognition for a while that age-related cutoffs are, are probably quite help, helpful because of this sort of, you know, as you were mentioning too, the subclinical uh, cardiovascular comorbidity that just tracks pretty well with age that can make a difference. But, but gender, not so much. Yes, and I think the other thing we talked about was heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. How do these cutoffs relate to patients with HEFPEF? Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And, you know, again, I think the, the goal has been to provide some stratification that's that's really useful, but not try to put things in, in two small buckets where it gets really hard to remember. And you are right in thinking about that there would be differences between heart failure with preserved versus reduced ejection fraction, particularly this may be more applicable to the ambulatory setting where patients aren't quite, you know, they have, they have chronic symptoms. And generally, you'll find lower levels associated with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction compared to heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. However, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, when someone presents the emergency department, usually they're quite short of breath and their, their symptoms would be in the bucket we often call New York Heart Association class four. In other words, they, they have symptoms at rest. They have these symptoms of paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. You know, they're, they're waking up at middle of the night because they've been lying down and there's been accumulation of fluid in their lungs. So, so the levels generally tend to be quite high. So we actually, for diagnostic purposes, we also don't differentiate between heart failure with preserved ejection fraction versus reduced ejection fraction. But again, in the clinic setting, if you measured it on the whole, you would find lower levels with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And as we uh, begin to wrap up uh, our session, uh, one of the focused areas in terms of healthcare economics is really uh, emergency department management, where uh, they're busy, they've got to make a lot of decisions quickly, and they're very impactful decisions. So looking at the emergency department, uh, what is your view on some of the health economic benefits of impl implementing NT-proBNP supported strategies uh, in looking at dyspnea in patients who present to the emergency department? Yeah, there've been, there've been, you know, these are generally simulation type studies, but knowing that the overall accuracy for the diagnosis of heart failure in the emergency department is improved with the addition of a nitritic uh, peptide there have been simulations that have suggested that, you know, on the whole, you may get about a $500 savings per patient. And in part, that's because you're not admitting patients who ultimately don't have heart failure, or if they do have heart failure, they're getting treated quicker. There was a very nice sort of economic analysis done uh, that was in the New England Journal now more than a decade ago by Christian Mueller that showed, you know, patients got 
treated faster. But that, at that time, that was based on a BNP analysis, the same as been done with N-terminal pro-BNP. There may be the use of less, or there is the use of less echocardiography. At times, if you have a very low level of, of uh, N-terminal pro-BNP, you know, below that 300 threshold, you can feel very confident that you've ruled out a diagnosis of uh, acute decompensated heart failure. So there are benefits, economic benefits. Uh, there are also workflow benefits, which to the emergency room at, at any time is important, and, and particularly given how crowded it has been during the uh, pandemic era is even more important. So I want to thank Dr. Christopher Filippi very much for joining us today on an engaging topic on heart failure and use of in vitro diagnostics, particularly NT-proBNP. I hope everyone has enjoyed this podcast episode about heart failure and the role of NT-proBNP. Please make sure to review the sections within the podcast prescription for reading materials uh, we have suggested. You'll also find some additional papers and studies uh, so based on today's podcast, I'll leave you with our pop quiz. What are some of the differences between BNP and NT-pro-BNP? You can go back and listen again if you'd like some more detail. Uh, so thank you again very much for listening. Please subscribe to Ortho Science Bites, our monthly podcast, where we will be discussing more complex questions that we face every day in our labs. Brought to you by Orthoclinical Diagnostics, pioneering advances in diagnostics for 80 years because every test is a life. Take care, stay healthy, and be safe.